It is good to be together. We sing a great Reformation song by Martin Luther, right? A mighty fortress is our God. And he was talking about someone that we don't often talk about in the American church and especially in Presbyterian churches. Who is that? The devil. One of the, the, the themes, one of the last biographies I read about Martin Luther was about this great, uh, distinguished German scholar, Heiko Obermann. And his uh, biography of Luther was entitled, Luther, a man between God and the devil. And so one of the stories of Martin Luther's life is when he was in the castle translating the, the Bible into the German language, this translation which would have a very explosive effect on all of Germany and all of Europe and eventually all of the world. He was in the castle translating the Bible wherein he suddenly took up a, his pen and, and ink and threw it across the room. He was fighting and throwing that ink against the devil. He felt like he was a man caught between God and the devil. Now, I gotta say, I never had that same experience as I attended seminary. But we are treading new ground here at Trinity Well Springs Church. Who has ever heard a single sermon on the gospel, on uh, the book of Job? Couple, any sermon series on the book of Job? I personally have never ever heard a single sermon on the book of Job in all my years attending and being around church. Nor have I ever heard from the pulpit not one sermon on the devil. And so I told you early on in this sermon series, hey, God is the central character in the book of Job. But I don't want to get, give the devil his due right at the beginning of the book, but we're going to come back and revisit Satan's role in Job's suffering and in Job's trials. And so today is that day. Sociologist Robert Wuthno suggests that whether or not you believe in the objective existence of Satan often depends on your social class. <clears throat> he says all you have to do is look at the parking lot of the church. If you see Lexuses, Mercedes, and Teslas, now I'm updating his cars that he mentioned. He says you won't see Satan preach inside. However, he says, if you see a bunch of pickup trucks, you will. Whether or not uh, this sociologist is correct, there is uh, the Satan figure in the book of Job that plays a central place in the book. So turn with me again to Job chapter 2. Today we're going to be uh, talking about the theology of Satan and asking the question, why doesn't Job blame the devil. Here is Job chapter 2, again revisiting the prologue. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? 
Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. Stretch out your hand and touch his bone and flesh. and He will curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. This is the word of the Lord. That's a hesitant thanks be to God, I know, right? <clears throat> be careful what you thank God for. This morning I want to start, I want to give you three quotes and four questions. And you say, Pastor, it seems like you have more answers, less answers, and more questions. And that might be true. Three quotes, four questions, a theology of Satan. First quote is from Philip Riken, the president of Wheaton College. He writes this, The devil's cleverest ruse is to make men believe that he does not exist. Or to give the false impression that he is a silly old character in a red suit with little horns and a forked tail. Or to convince us that his devilish powers are so overwhelming that we are helpless to resist. R.C. Sproul say, says much of the same thing when he writes, Satan's two most effective ploys are, number one, to get people to underestimate him so that he can lure us into a hidden snare or to overestimate him so that we may be so intimidated by him that we are paralyzed by his threatening power. So did you get the, the gist of these two gentlemen? Two trajectories exist in the modern American church. Totally underestimate the devil, pretend he doesn't exist, and therefore be ignorant and blind to the ways which Satan is alive and well in our world today, or totally overestimate Satan. Start quaking with fear, develop perhaps an unbiblically unbalanced obsession with the devil. Quote number three comes from Charles Spurgeon. A couple centuries ago says this, Satan always hates Christian fellowship. It is his policy to keep Christians apart. Anything which can divide saints from one another, he delights in. He attaches far more importance to godly fellowship than we do. Since union is strength, he does his best to promote what? Separation. Isn't that interesting? Two centuries ago, Charles Spurgeon says that the devil actually understands the importance of Christian fellowship more than Christians do. Do you think there's been an event in our world where the devil has been celebrating, perhaps, for more than a year, his ability and the church's inability to gather in worship, to be strengthened with power in the fellowship of brothers 
and sisters in Christ, we don't want to be unaware of the schemes of the devil and blind to the ways he has used even the coronavirus to undermine the fellowship of the saints. In some cases, the worship of the people of God. So, those are the three quotes. Here are the four questions. Very simply, who is Satan? What is Satan's origin story? What are Satan's schemes? And fourthly, getting back to the book of Job, why doesn't Job blame the devil for all his sufferings and trials and tribulations? First, who is Satan? We're going to need a little help here. Can you complete these phrases with me? What is the opposite of light? What is the opposite of good? Evil. What's the opposite of God? All three services flunked the test. You did no better than 8 o'clock at 9. If you said the devil, if you said Satan, you would be wrong. Satan's opposite is actually Michael, the righteous archangel. God has no equal. As Martin Luther's hymn says, God has no rival. There's no competitor or counterpart to God. God exists in a class totally and utterly by himself. There is no one like him. There's never been ever a true battle between God and Satan. Did you know that? God is infinite. Satan is finite. But you might say, Pastor, I have read the book of Revelation. What about the book of Revelation? Isn't there a big battle there in the end of time? You're probably thinking of Revelation chapter 20. Let me read it for you. John says, And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth. Some translations say over the face of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. Do you, get, do, you, do you understand what's going on in that so-called battle? One side suffers no casualties. The other side is completely and utterly devastated and defeated. Or you say, well, what about when the devil comes to tempt Jesus in the wilderness? Is that not a battle of cosmic epic proportions there in the devil, there in the desert after 40 days that the devil creeps up on Jesus. Oh, they're going back and forth. Is that not a battle that you could really call a battle? Well, Jesus says just three words after the third temptation. Be gone, Satan. Two verses later, this is what Matthew says. Then the devil left him. Now, you don't have to write a Ph.D. dissertation on the Gospel of Matthew to understand something very simple. It seems to me that that conversation that Jesus had with the devil, he could have ended that at any time that he wanted to. Be gone, Satan, and Satan would have left. But you then say, well, what about uh, the book of Job? 
Is not Job, like Martin Luther, caught between God and the devil? Isn't Job's life being, you know, you know, torn asunder between these great two cosmic forces? But have you ever recognized in the book of Job, in the prologue, chapters 1 and 2, that Satan only speaks when spoken to, only acts within God's permission. And even though Satan's intentions are completely nefarious and evil, God even challenged, uh, channels this malice for God's own glory. Only God could use even Satan for his own glory. That's how big. That's how awesome. That's how sovereign God is. And so you might have grown up in maybe a different tradition. Maybe it's a Baptist or Pentecostal church tradition where you were hearing about the devil like every other week, right? And you might have heard this, and maybe just because you're a student of the Word of God, Apostle Peter writes, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Very, very true. The devil is a lion, but he is a lion with a choke collar. He is a lion with a very short leash held by the hand of a powerful and sovereign and loving God. And so who is Satan? There's lots of names given to Satan throughout the scriptures. The tempter, the evil one, Beelzebub, Belial, enemy, adversary, deceiver, the great dragon, father of lies, murderer, an angel of light. But perhaps the best picture and portrait of Satan is a lion on a short leash wherein the leash is held by a sovereign God. And if you understand anything about the Old Testament, you might be surprised because Israel was surrounded by three great cultures, the Canaanites, the Egyptians, and the Babylonians. And all three of these cultures teemed with demonic agents and demonic activities, with a belief in demons, demon worship, with possession phenomena, exorcism, and spiritism. And even Israel's king, most notoriously Manasseh, was lured away in these occultic practices. You had astrologers, pagan priests, diviners, mediums, sorcerers, and soothsayers, which abounded in all three of those cultures, child sacrifice and worship to the god Moloch. Sexuality, if you can believe it, which I know you can because we are seeing it in our day, sexuality was perverted even through ritual prostitution. And so it's deeply surprising if you read the, the, the Old Testament from page one to the end, the Old Testament is deeply surprising and deeply instructive that when you read the pages of the Old Testament, you come to a certain conclusion. You begin to recognize that the Old Testament is radically theocentric. That is, it's radically God-centered. Attributions of causation, the explanation of all things, uh, belong to a sovereign God who holds the universe in His hand. Is that comforting for you? 
that the Old Testament people of God didn't dabble, they weren't overly satis- uh, curious about all these demon things happening all around there. They remained radically God-centered in their faith and in their lives. So who is God and who is Satan? Well, Satan is a lion but the, on a leash held by a powerful and sovereign and loving God who uses even the devil to bring God even more glory. How much more glory will God get? He didn't defeat Satan 2,000 years ago completely on the cross. He waits. He allows attacks and tribulations. Why? Because one day the victor is going to be seen in all of his glory. So even this us living in the middle of these times, God's glory is going to be exalted even more because Satan was the God of this world. It's incredible, but this is how sovereign, and this is how powerful, and this is how much God loves his own glory. Second question, what is Satan's origin story? I don't know if you've kept up on this, but today all these comic superheroes have an origin story. Have you, have you recognized this? Batman Begins, Iron Man, Spider-Man, they all have their origin stories. Even Superman, way back in the day, where was he from? This planet? Krypton, right? Because then he's allergic to kryptonite. And so even Superman in the, in the 70s, he has his origin story. And so we could ask the very same question of Satan. How did this person come to be? Because you recognize that there in the book of Genesis, God created the heavens and the earth. And since you are a student of Genesis 1, you say, well, pastor, what about Genesis chapter 1, verse 31? Where Moses writes this, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Now, doesn't your mind go somewhere? What about Satan? God created the heavens and the earth. This presumably includes all created beings, which angels are created beings. And so you deduct something very simple. Something happened between Genesis 1.31 and Genesis 3 where a serpent, the Satan, suddenly shows up unannounced in the Garden of Eden, in paradise itself. And so you could go to either Ezekiel chapter 28 or Isaiah chapter 14 and get the origin story of Satan. Today I'm going to look at Isaiah chapter 14. In Isaiah 14, the prophet Isaiah is describing God's judgment on the king of Babylon, but then slowly begins using language that is way too strong and way too cosmic in its scope to refer to any human king. And so there's a double sort of like a parallel going out. There's, yes, judgment on this Babylonian king, but there's also a cosmic a scenario and judgment that Isaiah is picturing. Here it is, Isaiah 14, verse 12. How you are fallen 
from heaven. And you begin to think, huh, that is interesting. O day star, son of dawn, and you, you recognize, oh, in other places in scripture, the, the star is symbolic of angelic beings. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms? So five times Lucifer says, I will, I will, I will. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. Stars, other places in scripture are referred to as angelic beings like Revelation chapter 12. John pictures Satan, he calls him the great dragon. Verse 4, he says this, his tail swept down, this great dragon, his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth. And so it's not only if you read Paradise Lost by John Milton in, in your college lit class or maybe even in high school, oh, it's like God, you know, Satan takes down a third of the angels from heaven. Maybe that's just from Paradise Lost. No, it's also from Revelation chapter 12. And so this Lucifer figure, this angelic being is saying, I want to be where only God can be. I will set my throne on high. This refers to where the Babylonian gods would sit. In other words, I want to be where only God belongs. Friends, the kingdom of Satan is all about getting the kingdom of Satan is always about his ego and his reputation. For Lucifer, ambition replaced gratitude. Lucifer became Satan when he decided that he should have the right to, to find for his own life what the greatest good should be in life. What is the greatest good? What is the greatest good What the Latins referred to as the, as the summum bonum. Satan chose to define for himself what was the greatest good on his own terms and for his own life, and it wasn't God. He didn't consider God to be his greatest good. And here's the question that should have all of us shaking in our boots. How often do we have that very same impulse in our lives. God, I don't want you to be my greatest good. God, there must be something behind your back that you're holding out for me. I'm going to go get it and bring it into my life. Ambition replaces gratitude in the life of Satan. Think about Adam and Eve in the garden. Satan used the very same argument against Adam and Eve that got him thrown out of heaven. Did God really say? In other words, 
Adam and Eve, God is withholding something from you, isn't he? Can't you feel it? There's something greater behind the back of God. Go get it. You deserve it. Something other than God that can be your greatest good in life. Something other than God that can give you life and joy and happiness. It's not God. For Satan, gratitude for his position in life was replaced by hellish ambition. Instead of receiving what God had given him with thankfulness and gratitude and as God is his greatest good, he went out and tried to snatch it behind the back of God. What about you? Do you think like Lucifer sometimes in life, God must be holding out on me. What's the summum bonum in your life? What's the greatest good? Friends, the beautiful truth of all the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation that God delights to always give you the greatest good, and that's God himself. And yet, from Adam and Eve to Billy Graham to Adolf Hitler, we've all committed one sin. We've all rallied around one common sin, common to everyone except Jesus who walked this earth. We often and incessantly choose to define for our own lives what is the greatest good. Sin is a natural disposition to distrust the goodness of God. Sin is a natural disposition to distrust the goodness of God. Have you ever committed that sin? I know I have. I've questioned God's goodness. God, give me something great. Give me joy. Give me happiness. And I don't want to look for it in you. And I know this is strong to say, but I don't think it's too strong to suggest there's something satanic about that impulse and about that way of relating to life. Was that a heavy question? Just a bit. Third question. What are Satan's schemes? I could go on and on, probably 10 or 15 points. Let me reduce them to three. First, what are Satan's schemes? Satan blinds the minds of unbelievers. Second Corinthians 4, 4, Paul says, in their case, referring to unbelievers, the God of this world, referring to Satan, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Are you surprised when the world acts like the world? Does that come as a shock and a surprise to you? It shouldn't. I am never surprised when those outside the church, when those in the world that don't know Christ, act like they are supposed to act. Why? Because Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers. That is one of his most principal schemes. Number two, what are Satan's schemes? Satan loves to choke the word of God out from your life. You might remember Jesus tells the parable of the sower, right? It's 
God as this great sower. He's, you know, scattering all the, the fertilizer, all the, the seed. Or and I guess in Florida, it's like laying the sod of the Augustine, which is a bunch of, uh, really, I mean, it's, it's really St. Augustine is a bunch of weeds, right? Can we say that? Nobody gets offended? All right. So, so God's this great scatter of seed, of fertilizer. He doesn't care where it goes. You just want all of it to get on the field. And then Jesus explains the parable, you know, because the disciples, they can't get anything on the first time. This is what has led to sermon series. Do you understand? Pastors have to go through a long time and keep talking about the same book. So blame it on the disciples, this long sermon series on Job. But this is what Jesus says. Mark 4, verse 15. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, and this is what Jesus says about Satan. Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Satan has one principal duty in that parable. He takes away the word that was sown. Satan loves to choke off your relationship with God by choking out the word of God in your life. Satan trembles when a Christian reads and meditates and decides to live their lives completely by the authority and the power and the sufficiency of the Word of God. But Satan delights when your spiritual life shrivels up, when my life shrivels up before God because of our inattentiveness and our neglect of the Word of God. Satan loves to scheme to take the Word of God from your life. Third, Satan is the father of lies. Jesus says so in John chapter 8. Satan lies to you about what your true identity is. He lies to you about what true goodness is and where it lies. And he lies to you about what true meaning is. Francis Chan once said, Our greatest fear should not be of failure, but of, of succeeding at things in life that don't really matter. Satan is equally satisfied, don't you think, to ruin your life with success and achievement and busyness as he is with poverty and trials and suffering. He loves to separate you from Jesus and he loves to separate you from God's bride, the church. And so he will speak all manner of lives to do just that. If I can get people separated from the church... That is a win for Satan. If I can get people separated from Jesus, that is the scheme of the evil one. Every single time, he will tell all kinds of lies to do precisely those two things. Finally, fourth question, why doesn't Job blame Satan for his sufferings? You read the book of Job, you recognize Satan is a big figure. He figures in this conversation with God. What is going on? Satan is not mentioned after the prologue. What's going on there? The simple historical answer is that the Satan, and it's always the Satan, it's always an article, ha-satanas, in the Hebrew, meaning the accuser or the adversary, occurs only in four passages in the Old Testament referring to a celestial being. The Old Testament people of God live with a radical God-centeredness to their faith, and attributed all things to the hand of a sovereign God. 
And so Job, as you read the book of Job, Job was not concerned with secondary causes, the Satan. Job was not concerned even with the tertiary causes of his problems, the Chaldeans and the Sabaeans who raided and attacked, the wind and the fire that destroyed parts of Job's life. Job lived with a profound sense of the God-centeredness prevailing all of his life. Is that instructive for us as Christians? Mike Mason puts it like this, the whole story of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, the whole story of the Bible might be summarized as the gradual unveiling of the profoundly personal character of both good and evil. In other words, Job understood, like we should all understand, that there is only one sovereign being in the whole world. Satan is not it. Satan is not sovereign, not even close. Only God is sovereign. Job understood that. We should too. And Job lived out, even before James wrote the book, of what James, uh, the apostle, wrote in James chapter 4, verse 7. James writes, Submit yourself then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, many people cite the second part of the verse. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Yet resistance is spelled out, is it not, in the very beginning of the verse. Submit yourself to God. This is the way to fight Satan. Complete submission to the ways and the purposes and the character of God. A relentless focus and a complete submission to your heavenly Father. And so just as Pastor Steve read for us in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul will give you some specific armor in the New Testament. The breastplate of righteousness. The belt of truth. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The gospel of peace. The shield of faith, which, which you can ex, you know, dis, extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. But the big overarching way you resist the devil is by living in full submission to God day in and day out, minute by minute, no matter how hard that might seem. So even in the New Testament, writers like Paul and James instruct New Testament believers that we, like Job, should never lose the radical and profound sense of the God-centeredness of our faith and the God-centeredness of our life. In fact, the way that you battle Satan is by being completely submissive to God. All of his ways, all of his purposes, embracing all of who God is, his very character for your life. Who is Satan? He's a lion. He likes to roar loudly. I was in Costa Rica on a spiritual emphasis week when I was studying Spanish, and believe me, studying Spanish was a spiritual battle. And this preacher came in from Haiti or the Dominican Republic, and he was talking about Satan. And he said, what would it be like if an ant crawled up on my leg to my shirt and right up to my microphone. And this ant began to growl and to, to intimidate you. Would you be afraid? He said, no, you just need to squish the ant. God is sovereign. God is powerful and he is loving. 
And so the devil is a lion, but he's on a lion on a short leash held by a sovereign God. Let's pray.